Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the Psalms. Psalm 28. Psalm 28, verses 1 through 9. Psalm 28. Psalm 28, beginning in verse 1. To you, O Lord, I call. My rock, be not deaf to me. Lest if you be silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil, who speak peace with their neighbors while evil is in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the work of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In him my heart trusts and I am helped. My heart exults and with my song I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. O oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we are here today because you have heard the pleas of your people in calling out for a Savior when we came to acknowledgement of our sins. And you have graciously forgiven us and have called us to yourself, and you have possessed us for yourself. And as your possession, Lord, would you continue to be gracious to us and help us as we give thought and consideration to your word. And by your spirit, would you help us to understand? And by your spirit, would you cause your word to bear fruit in our lives? We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The background to Psalm 28 is not immediately clear, but I think I can make a pretty good case for what I think is the background of the psalm that generates this, this song or this poem. I think that the passage, one of the predominant themes of the passage is the theme of, distinci- of distinction. So if you look at verse 2, it says, There hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. So he's crying out to the Lord, 
begging for the mercy of God. And so the question is, what is he, why is he crying out for mercy? It's not a psalm of confession, because the psalm doesn't give us any particular sin that the psalmist is confessing his sins to the Lord. And they, we don't see that he is taking any steps to, towards repentance because of a known sin that he is guilty of. So then why is he crying out to the Lord for pleas of mercy? And then if you go down to verse 3, the psalmist says, Do not drag me off with the wicked. Don't take me away. Don't drag me away. Don't cast me aside with the wicked. So why does he have this, this concern that the Lord might cast him away with the wicked? And he continues to then identify the wicked, explain what is it that makes them wicked. Well, he says they're workers of evil. And then continuing on, these workers of evil speak peace with their neighbors while there is evil in their hearts. So in other words, we have here individuals who perhaps claim to be righteous, claim to believe, claim to be trustworthy. They give this appearance, but then at some point it became visible. It became known that they were not who they said they were. That inwardly there was something else, something entirely different. They were not as trustworthy or perhaps even as Christian. That's what might be led to believe. He continues, give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds, render them their due reward. We have heard of the term guilty by association. Right? Two kids are in the grocery store, right? and then one decides to shoplift, and then the owner sees her in the camera, calls the police, and then they, both of them are booked. They're taken away. One has done the shoplifting, the other one, which is there. And perhaps he might be generally a good kid, does what is right. He had no idea that his friend was on the other aisle trying to stuff things into his pocket. But the owner saw them both come in together and engaging together. And they're both taken away. One is guilty by association. It is not that he did anything wrong or that he might even be lawfully convicted. He just happened to be with his friend who did something wrong. And I think this is, might be the a background to the psalm. And he's crying out for mercy, asking the Lord to make a distinction. I am not with the wicked. I was led astray. They gave me the impression that they are trustworthy, and now they have shown that they are not trustworthy. So we consider the psalm first. Let us consider that God shows no partiality. Perhaps the psalmist had made a kind of covenant, some kind of contract, an oath with an individual or a particular set of individuals to work together to some desired end. And then it became known later on that these individuals were pretty, actually pretty shady, perhaps scoundrels. They were not actually righteous. And so now outsiders looking in, looking at the psalmist, might say, David, you are guilty. 
Weren't you engaging with them? Didn't you strike some kind of deal with them? Weren't you, didn't I see you with them at some time, talking with them, perhaps sitting down with them? It's like two individuals becoming business partners. And then one of the partners decides to cut corners, is shading his business dealings, and doesn't pay his taxes, and then it becomes known. And then, but then both parties are brought into question, right? Because the other one right, partnered with them, even though the other one did everything right, they didn't do anything shady, did what he was supposed to do, had no idea that his business partner was engaging in some shady dealings, but they're both brought into question. Kind of the idea, I think, here, concerning the background to the psalm, so he cries out for the Lord, begs that God might distinguish him from these workers of iniquity. Even Jesus, some might say, was guilty by association. The Pharisees had a lot to say when Jesus engaged with sinners, when he would receive sinners and even sit down with sinners. They looked at Jesus disdainfully and said, how is he that he is eating with sinners? Guilt by association. There's no way that he could be the son of God. There's no way that he would allow this woman to wash his feet with this perfume if he knew actually what this woman did, if he actually knew this woman, right? Therefore, he cannot be a prophet. Otherwise, he would not allow that. Guilt by association. He cannot be who he is because he is engaging with sinners. But we must understand that there's a difference. We have to carefully consider the difference. 2 Corinthians 6.14, it tells us there, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has with righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? The passage there is not talking about, it's not saying that we never befriend those who do not share our faith. It doesn't say that we never engage with unbelievers. It never says that we never engage with people in the workplace. It doesn't mean that we ought to separate from family members who do not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not saying that at all. But it is concerning this distinction that Christians must bear. And so the concern of that passage is our Christian witness. And it's saying that we must not be so engaged with the world that our Christian witness is no longer distinguishable to where one cannot tell, is this a Christian or not? They profess this, but then they do all these things that make them look like they're not Christian. Are they really a Christian? Are they really a believer? There is a significant, distinguishable, noticeable difference between light and darkness. And if the light that you think you have is not distinguishable from the darkness, then you might be in a dangerous position. Or it might be the case that you've never been in the light at all. And it has to go beyond just church attendance. If the only discernible difference between ourselves and someone else who doesn't profess faith 
or is of the world is that one of us goes to church and the other doesn't, that cannot just simply be enough. It has to be much more than that. And Jesus gives us this caution in Matthew 6.22, this warning. It says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? The warning is that the darkness is so deceitful that one can think that they have light in themselves or that they are in the light or born out of the light that is born again, but in reality, they never have been born again. They never have received the gospel. But the Lord is never confused about the differences between the righteous and the wicked. even if one should be found guilty by association, though they have done nothing wrong. And how concerned should you be regarding guilt by association? In one sense, I think we can be proud if we are considered by others or we are judged by others as guilty by association. If, say, we are engaging and having a friendly conversation with somebody who has a different political view than ours, we should be proud in some sense if someone says that we are guilty by association because we are getting down and sitting down with somebody who perhaps has a very different worldview than ours. In one sense, we should be proud if someone says that we are guilty by association if we happen to have someone over for dinner that is engaged in a same-sex relationship. We should be proud if we are judged to be guilty by association if we are just simply having lunch with somebody who cusses like a sailor. should be proud in a sense because we would be walking in the same manner of Jesus. For Jesus was found guilty for the same things. But in another sense, we have to be very careful because in our world today, in our society, in our culture, there is a celebration of what is evil and a condemnation of what is good. So that there's a confusing of the two. We have to be careful concerning these things. We have to be careful and consider these things. When someone gets to the top of the iTunes music chart who claims to be a Christian and at the same time is a drag queen, We should understand the differences and be careful uh, concerning our Christian distinction when our society and culture is blurring the different lines that are drawn in the sand, when men are dominating women's sports, when boys are becoming eunuchs, when healthy girls are having double mastectomy. What we see all around us today is an all-out war against distinction. An attack against distinction is also an attack against the Lord. For the Lord himself makes a declarative statement of distinction when he says in the scriptures that he is holy and that there is none like him. 
the only way we will really know the difference between the righteous and the wicked is by their fruit. Verse 3, Do not drag me off with the wicked, with the workers of evil who speak peace with their neighbors while there is evil in their hearts. Give to them according to their work and according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render them their due reward. Because they do not regard the works of the Lord or the works of his hands, he will tear them down and build them up no more. How can we tell the difference between those who honor the Lord and those who do not? We consider their deeds. We consider whether or not their life gives honor to the works of the Lord. Now, it isn't clear if the psalmist is trying to give some kind of distinction between the works of the Lord and the work of his hands. I think he's pointed to the full comprehension of the works of the Lord from creation to redemption. And this timeline would have been redemption through the Exodus, through signs and wonders. But this certainly would also include the work of redemption in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all men everywhere are called to respond to the work of the Lord, the work of creation, and that the Lord holds all men accountable with regards to how they respond to the work of the Lord in creation. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, for God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The problem is not that man cannot see the invisible God through creation. The problem is that man does not want to see the invisible God through his creation. Therefore, the Lord holds man accountable for his failure to recognize that when the sun rises, when the sun sets, when they look at the mountains, when they see a child being born into the world, that there is a divine creator. Not only that, but also God holds man accountable to his works in redemption. Romans 9.17, which is actually a quotation from the book of Exodus, it says, Therefore the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What is one of the chief reasons why God slaved his people from slavery in Egypt? It's, so that to, it's in order for the fame of his own name. So that when his name is spread to other peoples who have not and were not part of that salvific work themselves personally, but they hear about it, they might respond to the Lord by looking to Him and following Him. 
so similarly. In John 3.16, it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world in order to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For God so loved that which was unlovable. For God so loved those who were sinners. For God so loved those who loved their sin that he sent his son into the world so that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. The word world there speaks also of accountability because God sent his son into the world. He holds all men responsible to responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ when they hear so that when one says, I refuse to believe, they are not giving honor to the work of the Lord, and therefore the Lord will render to them their due reward. You will know them by their fruit. The deeds of these imposters in Psalm 28 show that they do not honor the Lord. They give this appearance of righteousness, but then it became clear, as it always does, that they were not of the Lord. They did not honor the Lord. And not only is there a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked, there's also a clear distinction when it comes to outcome. The psalmist says, give to them according to the work. Yeah, I think, again, he's maintaining his distinction. I am not with them. Don't drag me off with them. But Lord, see what they have done and their deception. Give to them according to their work, according to the evil of their deeds. Give to them according to the work of their hands. Render to them their due reward. Romans 2.6 says that the Lord will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury, tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So the psalmist calls God to make a clear distinction. And as I said, we must be clear about this distinction. Right? I want my Christian identity, I want my Christian distinction to be sharp. Like an edge that's grinded with a stone. To have this fine edge that if you put the distinction as a blade to anything, that'll just slice like butter. First John points to several different things that make Christians distinct from the world and gives us several things by which we maintain the edge of this Christian distinction. To name some of them, according to 1 John, one of the things that make Christians distinct from the world is the fact that they fellowship with Christ and not with the darkness. 
1 John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with Christ while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Right? We must be distinguishable. Another Christian distinction is that there is an acknowledgement of sin. 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Right? Acknowledgement of sin is what leads to salvation in the first place. But if one cannot acknowledge that they have sin and need of repentance, if one cannot acknowledge that they are in sin and need a Savior to rescue them from their sins, then they have no salvation. And they do not have that Christian distinction, a third Christian distinction according to 1 John. We see in 1 John 2, 3, which regards or which concerns the keeping of commandments it says there, and by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar and his truth is not in him. Another Christian distinction is concerning what we love and what we do not love. First John 2.11, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because darkness has blinded his eyes. First John will go on to say, how is it possible for you to love, say you love the Lord and then hate those who belong to Christ? It's impossible to love one and not the other. Another one is concerning the world. First John 2.15, do not love the world. Well, the things in the world, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There must not be a competing loves in our hearts, these foundational, these primary loves, that one primary love has to occupy our hearts. That's what makes it primary. It's a love for God, not a love for the world. I would commend to you a sermon by Vody Bauckham. I believe it's called just Do Not Love the World. Find it on YouTube. We preached it at Ligonier Conference back in spring. It is an amazing sermon speaking to this very topic. Another Christian distinction is confession of Jesus. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. You cannot have the Son without the Father. You cannot have the Father without the Son. You cannot say that you believe in God and not believe in His Son, for God has made it that in order to come to Him, you must believe in His Son. One last one is repentance. 1 John 3, 9, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. This points to the impossibility of the practice of sin without looking for repentance or pursuing repentance. It is impossible for one who has been born of God to continue in sinning without remorse, without sorrow, without looking or aiming or striving for repentance. Anyone who does so, John would say he is a liar and has not actually been born again. The Lord shows no partiality. There's no gaining God's gracious favor through our own deeds or our own efforts. 
The Lord knows how to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And so we also must be clear about those distinctions as well and be careful about maintaining those distinctions in our own lives. This takes us to secondly, God's heritage in Christ. As we consider deeds, as we consider good works, what is the purpose of good works. Now, many of you, I don't want to spend too much time here, many of you know the difference here or the purpose of good works, the difference between faith and good works, and the important about maintaining a careful distinction here that we're not called to define our salvation or, or ground our salvation in our good works. But it bears stating because we must make sure that we are clear on the differences here. It's the difference between the horse and the carriage. You don't put the carriage before the horse because it's not going to go anywhere. It's a fruitless endeavor. It is vain. It amounts to nothing. But the horse must go before the carriage, and wherever the horse goes, there goes the carriage. So also faith must lead the way. Wherever you see a person of faith, you should also see a trail of good works. King Edward appointed William Wickham to build a stately church, and he accomplished his task. And in one of the, in one of the windows, he had inscribed... This work made William Wickham. The king called William Wickham to himself and asked him about this inscription and said, what are you trying to say here? Are you saying that you did this all on your own? Are you saying that you, your own hands accomplished this? And William Wickham says, no, that is not at all what I'm trying to communicate, my Lord. I was just simply saying that this work is actually what, what made me. It is this work that made me who I am today, for which he did gain some recognition for the building of this church. Why do I share this story? Because it points to something that is it's generally true, perhaps even more than generally true amongst human beings, is that man oftentimes defines himself by his deeds. Specifically, his good deeds. But the man or woman that God is pleased with is the kind that is defined by their faith and their works prove their faith. The New Testament calls for a distinguishment between the righteous and the, and the wicked. It gives us the distinguishing marks of true religion. Just go to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, called out of darkness into his marvelous light, and being in the marvelous light then comes with these works of light, that those who work in the light do not bear fruit of darkness. So then we must examine ourselves. Are we maintaining this distinction from the world? Are we bearing good fruit? Perfection isn't expected, but when we see bad fruit, are we taking the pruners? 
and cutting them off. And sometimes you need something much bigger. Sometimes the simple one-handed pruners don't work all that well, especially if you've got something, if you've got a branch that is much thicker. It's not going to do much work good. So you need something, a two-hander, to take to whatever it is that's producing the bad fruit and cut it off. Right? Are we willing to go to such lengths to remove any bad fruits that may become evident in our lives? The thing about bad fruit is that you don't need to be like in some kind of expert. You don't have to be well-informed as a landscaper or as a gardener to be able to tell the difference between a good fruit and a bad fruit. My wife gets flustered sometimes because buy some fruit at the grocery store, two days later they're already starting to go bad. Right? How can you tell that it's bad? And understand it would be slow, that she'd be, good, could be frustrated. You paid some money for something that only lasts a couple days. Right? It's inflation, come on. It's, we need to have some fruit here that will actually last. But how can you tell the difference? Just look at the fruit. Right? The bad fruit just looks ugly. It's got white stuff on it. It's bruised. You touch it. It feels kind of squishy. Like You don't want to put that thing in your mouth. You can just tell the difference. I have, I don't know, six, seven rose bushes in my house. Some of them came with the house. Some of them I purchased myself. I didn't know how much work it took to maintain a rose bush. It takes a lot of work. You've got to keep pruning them. You've got to keep deadheading them. It was so tedious. I mean, at this point, I, I actually enjoy it. But they are a lot of work. And the reason why you've got to keep pruning them and cutting off the dead bushes. One, because you know, as you know, flowers don't last very long. And so they die out very quickly, and then what you have is just the dead head. And if you don't cut them off, it just removes. It takes away from some of the, the beauty of the rose bush because you have a bunch of dead stuff on it. Not only that, but cutting off the dead heads promotes new growth. And if you leave the dead heads on there for too long, it actually might encourage the growth of fungus and the rose bush. This is why we must examine ourselves. And if we see any deadheads in our lives, if we see any bad fruits, we must be quick to cut them off. Because otherwise, you cannot promote better health in your Christian walk. The purpose of good works is to give us assurance about ourselves and give us assurance about others that we are indeed born again believers. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 actually gives us the permission to judge one another. It says we don't, to judge outsiders, to judge those outside of the church, that's, that's not our jurisdiction. That belongs to the Lord, to render the judgment. But when it comes to one another, to anyone who bears the name of Christ, we're given permission to judge one another. This is why we're given the commandment and the permission to even put someone through church discipline when we see or recognize someone who bears the name of Christ and they seem to be bearing bad fruit and we gently call them out on it and they refuse to prune the bad fruit then the Bible ultimately calls us to separate ourselves from such an individual who professes faith 
the 2012, that presidential hopeful Senator Rick Santorum claimed that Barack Obama's policies were of a different theology. And the media came after him, essentially saying, are you saying that Barack Obama isn't a Christian? I mean, he said he was a Christian. Are you saying he's not a Christian? And the senator essentially just said, if he says he's a Christian, he's a Christian. But he's essentially saying that to profess faith is to possess faith. But that's not entirely true, is it? It has to be much more than that. We have to be able to see tangible evidence that this person is who they say they are. And so also with ourselves, looking at our works, looking at our deeds, helps us to examine ourselves and helps us to gain greater confidence that yes, indeed, I am in Christ. Not because I put the carriage before the horse, but because faith is what drives my good works. I do these things because first and foremost, I love the Lord and I desire to honor and glorify and please Him. The Lord knows the distinctions. And those who are distinctly His, they are His heritage. Verse 6 says, Blessed be the Lord, for He has heard the voice of my pleas for mercy. The Lord is my strength and my shield. In Him my heart trusts. And I am held, my heart exalts. And with my song, I give thanks to him. The Lord is the strength of his people. He's a saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. The psalmist went from turning to himself to saying, Lord is my strength, to then saying the Lord is the strength of his people has heard the voice of his pleas for mercy. Now the psalmist is confident that he has the Lord's attention, that the Lord has not cast him off with the wicked. He blesses God for his salvation, and he blesses God because he continues to keep his people. The Lord knows how to keep those who are his, who continue to bear that mark of distinction. In Matthew 13, 24, Jesus has a parable there about the good field and that an enemy came and then sowed bad seed among the field and then over time began to produce the land and then there was, behold, there were weeds coming out of the ground with the good fruit. And the question becomes, well, what do we do? And the master of the field says, let them both grow together until the harvest. And when the harvest comes, I will command the reapers and they will make that distinction between the weeds and what's good. And he will separate them out and he will burn the weeds and keep the wheat into the barn. First Peter 2 says that God's people are a people for his own possession. One of the most precious truths of the gospel is that in Christ Jesus, we belong to the Lord. The Lord knows who are His. The Lord keeps those who are His. 
He knows how to distinguish the difference between those who are righteous and wicked, between those who are His and those who claim to be His, but their deeds show differently. There may be many voices in the world, proclaimers of false religion, false theology, false worldviews, false ways of living, and together they might be so loud as to drown out the voices who bear the marks of Christian distinction, but the Lord's ears are sharp enough and keen enough to always be able to distinguish and hear the voices of those who are His. And what's unique to them is that they also bear the divine mark of forgiveness. I'd be remiss if we at least did not touch briefly on the topic of forgiveness, considering the emphasis of deeds and outward appearance not being consistent with an inner reality. Many of these things in this passage should point to the preciousness of divine forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is precious to the Christian life. It is one of the things that makes them separate from the world. Divine forgiveness is like touring a grand palace, seeing the exquisite palace from the inside, seeing its beauty, see all the things that are hung up on the walls. You're there and you feel a sense of awe, but also humility that you get to even step foot into this grand palace. Divine forgiveness is being able to enter into the palace of God. And in considering one's own unworthiness, those who bear the divine for, mark of divine forgiveness walk about with them this mark of humility because they recognize that they are undeserving of God's gracious forgiveness. Divine forgiveness is like being condemned as a criminal, being rendered a just verdict and being found that you are guilty, but then coming before the king and being pardoned of all your transgressions and the king doing much more than that, but also inviting you to ride with him in the king's carriage. Those who bear the mark of divine forgiveness not only walk about with a humility, but also with a sense of joy. The joy that comes from knowing that your sins, all of them, have been forgiven in Christ Jesus. And anyone, any culture, or any society that would celebrate sin, call sin good, call sin what is right, call sin what is true, and even beautiful, is actually making a mockery of divine forgiveness and trampling upon it with dirty shoes. Because divine forgiveness says, I am in sin and I need a Savior. But when we celebrate sin, we're saying that there is no need of divine forgiveness. Forgiveness highlights the glory of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. In the work of Jesus, right, we see so much of the person of Jesus Christ. We see his mercy, his kindness, his love, his forgiveness. 
And it is this forgiveness that secures us in Christ Jesus as his prized possession. Though we may be mocked or ridiculed or slandered or even ostracized in this world because we maintain our Christian distinction, let us be unashamed of bearing the marks of divine forgiveness. Because not only are these the marks that distinguish us from the rest of the world, but they also assure us of God's divine love. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, you are holy. There is no other God like you, and there is no God besides you. Lord, it is hard for us and our finite minds to comprehend how you maintain your separateness and your holiness and at the same time come to us, come into our world, robed also with humanity, becoming like us in every way and yet without sin, so that you can be a faithful and merciful Savior towards us so that you can call us to yourself, so that we can be your prized possession. We are your possession. We are your heritage. Lord, help us to maintain this witness, this distinction, because this is what gives us the assurance that we are indeed your prized possession. Help us to walk in this distinction, not as an effort to earn your favor, but because we have already received your favor through the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.